1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to It Happened in Hollywood, the penultimate episode. Did I use that word? Yes. Right. Okay. Next to last. The next to last of this, of season two. Right. We're still waiting on our pickup for season three. We're hopeful. Yeah, fingers crossed. Seth Abramovich here, senior writer
2: at The Hollywood Reporter. And I'm Chip Pope. Yeah, and I, this is when I always do like a couch gag, like a Simpsons couch gag. I say something that I'm yeah, into. you, you or, say something humorous that makes right. me laugh. Right, exactly. But instead, I'm well. How about just this is where we have a couch gag, and and that will count as like meta. So the
1: couch gag is the, is the couch gag.
2: Yeah, you know, like on Simpsons, they'll have a the couch gag and then they'll run away and there'll be another couch or something. This is, this is like that. <laughs> all right, fine.
1: We have something truly fantastic in store for you today. We have director Richard Donner, uh, a true Hollywood legend, director of some of the most beloved movies of all time, The Goonies. Oh, everybody loves The Goonies. And, the Lethal uh, Weapon the, series. Yeah, he did the whole Lethal Weapon series. He did The Omen Wow. That Exorcist-adjacent thriller. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Supernatural horror. And uh, the topic of this week's episode, a movie that is very important to me, Superman the Movie from 1978, starring Christopher Reeve. And Margot Kidder,
2: Lois Lane, and Marlon Brando, and Gene Hackman, and Ned Beatty, and
1: Valerie Perrine. What a cast this movie (laughs) had. Wow. Yeah. Incredible cast and really the first big budget studio superhero movie. Yes. And they kind of broke the mold. I don't know. I watch superhero movies now and they just don't hit the tone the way Superman the movie did. Right. So we'll have Richard for you uh, right after the theme song on It It Happened Happened in Hollywood. Hollywood. Okay, welcome back. You know, on the show, we have certain movies and people that resonate with us. And, you know, we ask a lot of people. Not everyone says yes. But Richard was definitely at the top of my list this season. I really wanted to get him specifically to talk about this movie. You love Superman, right? It's very important to you? I do. It kind of changed my life as a, you know, six or seven-year-old kid. I think that was when I realized what movies could be and do. Uh-huh. And um I went to the store where they uh you can get a decal. You pick the decal from a book and they put it on a t shirt and I picked Superman the movie and um I wore that shirt till it was shredded. Oh
2: my gosh. Our family had the video disc of this movie. Oh wow. RCA video disc. Anybody remember that? Outmoded technology. Yeah, it was like a record that you'd play. It was a <laughs> V it was a, it was kind of split the difference between a VCR and a record player. And it had like one of those Victrola Speakers on top <laughs> Pretty much It was all right. Yeah It was select RCA select division It had a really good picture
1: actually Yeah And so Richard said yes And it just so happens That his production offices Are down Wilshire Boulevard From where Hollywood Reporters Headquarters are So we all just Scooted down the boulevard And went to his offices And, and what did you make of those Chip? It was an amazing office He has all the Clapper boards From his films Up on the wall. That's right, yeah. On the ceiling, aligning the ceiling, he has all these clapboards. Everywhere you look, there's some sort of memorabilia from one of his amazing, iconic movies. Yeah, the boat from the Goonies. Not the entire boat.
2: That would take up too much space. But a model of the ship from the Goonies (laughs) in a
1: corner of his office. And he keeps Sloth in the closet. It's crazy. I had no idea he was going to be there. No, he doesn't do that. But he's amazing. He's 89. He's 89. He even had, like, a board with all the index cards for Lethal Weapon 5. He's still writing and prepping Lethal Weapon 5. It's amazing. He's sharp, funny, unpretentious, and you are going to love this. Here's us meeting Richard Donner in real time. This is us sitting down and talking to him for the first time. We're here with a total legend, uh, Richard Donner. (laughs) Yes. Do you like to be be called um, uh, Dick or Richard? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Dick. (laughs) Okay, even if
0: people don't know you that well, you like Dick Donner, Peter, Dick, whatever. <laughs> I, it's, it's whatever comes out easy. So why
1: don't we just jump right to uh, where you were right before Superman? So you, you had made uh, the
0: Omen, right? Right. And, and Good movie. Yeah. Scary I, movie. Scared yeah. the hell out of me. Oh
1: right, the Jackal Baby and the yes,
0: with the pole that's right. through the priest. Right. Oh my God, that was dark <laughs> stuff. It was dark. It was really scary. Was that kind of riding a wave of The Exorcist? No. Friggin' Exorcist, if we'd come out before, we would have. But The Exorcist scared off so many people, they didn't go to it. But no, we, they, uh, it, was ready, it wasn't a wave, it was a wave. was The producer had that material and was at every studio in town and got turned down. And then um, Alan Ladd, who used to be my agent and was head of Fox... And somebody slipped me the script because it was at Warner Brothers and being turned down that weekend. And I read it, and I kind of saw in my head why it was being turned down. And I went to Alan Ladd with it, and he said, let's make it. So it just happened to be the right moment, the right time, right everything. I wish we had been in front of Billy Freegan, but it didn't happen.
1: <laughs> I sense a bit, a little bit of a rivalry
0: there. With the Not two at films. all. I, <laughs> I love him. I respect him. So,
1: how does one go from a occult, a, a satanic film like that, smaller scale, a mystery,
0: suspense, thriller,
1: <laughs> Sorry, that too, to you know, the biggest comic book movie ever made at that point?
0: A telephone call on a Sunday morning, hungover, <laughs> still a little stoned uh, <laughs> from a producer with a Hungarian accent, who said, I'll give you a million dollars to make a my movie, or whatever, that's Italian, it was <laughs> Hungarian, uh, why I gave up acting. And um, it was a telephone call, the guy said, I have this script, I'll give you a million dollars, it's two pictures, one and two, he said a million dollars. Immediately I knew somebody was putting me on, one of my friends, especially with the accent. But the guy convinced me. He had done a lot of movies. One was uh, The Three Musketeers, which with excess footage, they made The Four Musketeers <laughs> and didn't want to pay the actors. There's, I believe there's a clause called the Salkine Clause at the Screen Actors Guild that you have to declare now, or since then, how many pictures you're making, because they got away with... But anyway... That's the name for the producer, Salkine? That's right. So he's working with the
2: infamous Salkinds on Superman. Yeah, so who are these guys? It was a uh kind of shady <laughs> dude and his son. And so <laughs> they've been trying to get the rights for Superman for a few years and finally they got the the rights to it. And uh I don't know where they got their money from. I'm sure you could look it up, but they're just were notorious for doing something just like they did with the three musketeers. Well, "Well, we got a bunch of footage. Let's make it into two movies. They were just the kind of stereotypical, let's make lots of money.
1: (laughs) And as you'll see, Dick Donner got screwed over for Superman 2, even though he made Superman 1 such a masterpiece, which made tons of money. But because they were kind of shady producers, he gets squeezed out of his own franchise. But more to come on that a little bit later. So
2: he gets the script for Superman from them and it's by Mario Puzo wrote the original draft of, of The Superman. Godfather fan. Yes. Wow. And it's 550 pages long for both <laughs> Supermans and he got paid 600 grand for it. And so it's just kind of a
1: auspicious start. And Superdog's head turns up in the bed with him. No, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a Bad crazy start for Richard Donner to get into bed with these sulkins. So these shady producers call him. He shows interest in the project, even though he thinks it's a prank call. And
0: this is what happens next. He sent the script over, like the time I flushed the toilet, the, the doorbell rang. Mm-hmm. It was that tight. And I read it. And um, I was not a great comic book fan, but I'd read Superman as a kid. And um, it was always truth, justice, the American way. In some way, there was a dignity to it. Not shouldn't have been under the word comic book. This was a parody on a parody. And I called a dear friend who I've known for years, and I always wanted to work with a great great writer, Tom Mankiewicz. I said, I think I've got the project we could work together on. And he said, what is it? I said, Superman. And he hung up on me. <laughs> and I got him back. And I said, no, I'm serious. He said, no, you're not. I said, yes, I am. I said, Tom, just come over and read this. And he didn't live far. So I took another couple of hits. And um, <laughs> they had sent over a package of the script, which was like, script was you get it hurting, you're carrying it. it was two movies terribly written, but not the writer's fault. It was the director's fault who had been on it. Because he was directing him in a to parody this. It had no sense of reality for what Superman could or should be. And then he went, I put on the, it's probably history by now, but I put on the Superman costume because they had sent it. It was terrible. As a matter of fact. Is it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that was the handmade one that, of course, we never used. The one that Christopher <laughs> Reeve is wearing there? Yeah. Wow. Oh, it looks pretty it's, good. It's, oh, it's terrible. Terrible. <laughs> look at it, you. Look. Anyway, and I came running across the lawn when Tom got out of his car, and I almost panicked him. But he read it, and we came up with the thought that the challenge would be to make it an unrequited love story of two guys in love with the same girl. Both the two guys. This is going to be a major role for some actor in our heads because to be able to play both roles. And, of course, Christopher Reeve played it better than anybody, but that and the fact that we had to make the audience believe a man could fly. And so Tom said, yeah, I'll do it. Then I had again a terrible fight with the producers. I said, I do it, but I want to do a rewrite. No, you don't have to. And so I walked, and then they called and said, OK, a rewrite. And we brought Tom on. And the rest is, as they say, history.
1: <laughs> Some great stuff. In that story there. First of all, yeah. Mankiewicz, that name definitely rings a bell. So who is he, Chip? Well, Tom Mankiewicz
2: was the uh, son of Joseph Mankiewicz, who okay. wrote and directed all about Eve. And then he's the nephew of Herman Mankiewicz, who wrote Citizen
1: Kane. So quite a movie legacy. And then, of course, Ben Mankiewicz is on Turner Classic Movies. Yes. from Mankiewicz. those his great uncle or something. I don't know. I've lost <laughs> track. But they're all related. Yeah. So I love that image of Richard Donner putting on this uh, Superman costume that they gave him (laughs) and uh, running across his lawn to greet his friend and uh, convince him to sign on to do this uh, rewrite. It's quite the image. (laughs) Yeah, it's very cute. And then, of course, he showed us a photo later of Christopher Reeve wearing the costume. (laughs) That was pretty great. So Tom Mankiewicz is on board to rewrite it. So what what do you think he meant by, like, a parody of a parody, like—
2: that it was campy,
1: probably. And he didn't want that. Right. So
2: Mario Puzzo has written this campy version of Superman. Yeah. 550 campy
1: pages. <laughs> yeah. As what he calls a, a parody of a parody. And I think what he was trying to get at with Mankiewicz was uh, something more rooted in reality, something that audience can really attach themselves to. Right. Because until that point, Superman was a television show in the 50s but it wasn't a serious property and no one really took it that seriously. Now,
0: Superman at the time, you know, there was the TV show in the 50s. Which the flying material that they gave us that they had been preparing pre-production for a year was that kind of flying. It was the guy laying on a board with a couple of ropes and um, smoke being blown by him. I mean, that's all they had. We had to start from scratch. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: No, not at all. Okay. I'm, I'm curious. You know, so people didn't take Superman very seriously. Exactly. With, from that show, right? That was sort of just kiddie stuff.
0: But as a kid, you did. Mm-hmm. I remember as a kid, I took that seriously. Right. That and Jack Armstrong or whatever the hell else was right. out there. And at I the took time. the
1: Incredible Hulk seriously, but you watch it now and it's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. So this was was there ever you
0: took the Incredible Hulk seriously? <laughs> I did. What was your childhood like? Go ahead. <laughs> I was an angry kid. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I'm just wondering, because it is still accepted as the template for these serious, epic, blockbuster comic book movies that have now completely taken over Hollywood. And I'm wondering if at any point you you all sat and said, we can change the way people see comic books. We can make something, you know, real and important and lasting. No, 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 no. no. Because
0: we... we although there were made comic book movies before, there were TV shows, there were some that were done before Superman, but I had not seen them. Our approach to it was that this had to have a sense of reality, but within its own reality. And that, as I said, the original script took this parody of life and parodied it on top of it. So what it couldn't have, you couldn't treat it as a reality. You You couldn't treat a love story as a... A love story. You couldn't treat mm-hmm. Clark Kent, Lois Lane, and and Superman as Jules and Jim. So we approached it just that this had its own reality. It's not real, but it's real within its own moments in time. And that approach
2: worked because, like you said, kids take it seriously, and little Seth was there taking it seriously. <laughs> I was taking it seriously. So this tone that he struck
1: really nailed it. Yeah. All right, so the movies a go. the rewrites happening, and, of course, it came prepackaged with Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. Right. They were not negotiable, <laughs> but who would want to negotiate not exactly. having them in your movie? So the problem was they needed a Superman. Richard felt since they had two big stars, they didn't need a big star to play Superman. So
0: they went looking for a Superman. When I came on the picture, it had been in pre-production for... I think a year or two, and um, their casting was to approach stars. Who were they at the time, Paul Newman, Redford, uh, Stallone? I mean, you name them, and they they wanted those people because they wanted a name. And I said, look, you've got Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. You don't need a name. And not only that, if we're going to make this thing work, I just can't see Robert Redford in tights flying over <laughs> metropolis we have to find a new or a real Superman and we had lots of arguments as you can see I didn't get along with them and um, the casting director Jesus I need somebody from my office
2: Lynn Stallmaster <laughs>
0: <Two> <laughs> I've seen Superman like a billion Man. times so. Lynn Stallmaster great great <laughs> casting director and he said, I saw this kid in a play downtown the other night and I want you to meet him. I said, well, and we were on the, like the 10th floor of the Sherry Netherlands in New York, it was a summer day, windows were open and in the window flies this kid, stands on the sill with the wind blowing in his hair and he steps in. I said, you can fly. I mean, that's automatically gets you the part. He said, thank you. And, uh, no, he sat down. Just, <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was like,
2: what? where are you going with this?
0: <laughs> and uh, he was very skinny, hence that picture. Uh. And his hair was kind of light blonde, light brown rather. But the whole thing was, he was so serious And when he talked about the character, and when he read that, all of a sudden it was like, I'm hearing it. I'm hearing it the way it was written. I'm hearing it the way I wanted it. But I had a problem, the kid was skinny. So that night I went to see him in a, the same play down in the village and he was wonderful, really wonderful, great presence. So I called him back and I said, he came in and I said, listen, I don't know how we're gonna do this, but we're gonna build you up if you're gonna, he said, I was a jock all my life. He said, and when I, and I was built, I was another 50 pounds heavier. He said, but when I decided to become an actor, Said, I lost all that weight because I didn't want to, I said, can you put it back? He said, I promise. So we hired him. I mean, I I'd shot a screen test with him in that outfit with perspiration rings under the, <laughs> the things that. and black shoe polish in <laughs> his hair. And my, when he did Clark Kent, he wore my one rim glasses. And um, when he came to England, we put him with the actor that was in uh, the Wookiee, what that Oh, Peter Mayhew. Yes, he was a weightlifter and a bodybuilder, and he worked with Chris, and you could actually see it day by day as this body started to come out. So um, how did we find soup? And that's how I tested so many people because the studio wanted them tested, including the dentist of the wife of the producer, <laughs> who physically looked like him, and I mean, but, but the poor guy was... He was a good dentist. It just, uh, you know, this was Sunday work. Stay away from it.
1: Okay. Any fanboys listening, you have to be happy about some of this stuff. (laughs) Chewbacca was Christopher Reeves' trainer to get him bulked up to play Superman. Seven foot two inch Peter Mayhew. I'm
2: geeking out. Yeah. And now he's training Superman. And, Instead uh, of a
1: dentist. And then you get a bonus little story about the sleazy producers who somehow got his wife's dentist to uh, audition. Yes. <laughs> With this <laughs> dentist, we can film seven <laughs> Superman movies for the same price.
2: Uh, <laughs> he works cheap. And he'll do all of our tea. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the producer's pitch.
1: All right. Moving right along. So we have Christopher Reeve, this uh, very little known Juilliard grad who's doing some local theater in New York, who's now Superman. Right. And uh, they need his romantic foil, the dogged journalist Lois Lane. Margot Kidder was not necessarily the only choice. There were others. And if you go online on YouTube, you can see auditions of some of the other actresses who tried to be Lois Lane. But here's how Richard got to the decision to cast Margot. We were watching uh, some of the uh, screen tests. They have them on YouTube for Lois Lane. Huh. Leslie Ann Warren
0: was one of them. Right, Leslie Ann Warren. Uh, how about a glass of wine? I never drink when I fly. You never drink when you fly. Uh, uh,
1: now then, um, is it true that you can see through anything? Yes, pretty much.
0: Uh-huh. And uh, you are totally impervious to pain. Well, so far. Um, what color underwear am I wearing? Pink.
1: And um, wow. Stockard Channing. Channing
0: was did Stockard. one. Stockard? Gee, you're right. My God. Oops, Ooh, oh, my
1: God. That's all right, Clark. I just didn't hear you knock, that's all. <laughs> well,
0: right, you, you, you know, for goodness sake, the door wasn't even
1: locked. I mean, just anybody can walk in here. Oh, there you go. Running yourself down again, Clark. Oh, very funny. Hmm. Oh, I'm perfectly serious. Well, anyway, uh here, a little, uh, little something for the newlyweds dinner tonight. Pansies. Uh-huh. How... Different. Oh, would you believe they, they they grow wild all around here? But you should see what they're charging for roses at that gift shop. Oh, I can imagine. Um
0: They were all good. They were all interesting. There were three or four of them. They were they were really interesting. There was something about Lois Lane that I couldn't put into words. Somehow I was looking for it. And I got this is the God's honest truth. I was in London and I had to come back to the States for some reason, California, and Lynn Stallmaster said while you're there, there's an actress I want you to meet. She was in a series called Nichols, with Tim um, Garner. Uh, uh-huh. Jim Tim Garner at, at Warner Brothers. It's called Nichols. It was a, a western, and she was in it. And I, I vaguely remembered her. She stood out. Anyway, um, we had an appointment, and she came in to see me. And when she came through the door of this office, she either tripped on the threshold or whatever and went flat on her face and just kind of lay there on the floor and looked up at me. She says, hi. And I just looked. I said, this is her. This is Lois Lane. (laughs) This is the calamity I was kind of looking for, but I couldn't put it in words. Brought her over to England, and she screen tested with Chris, and she was just wonderful, just great. The two of them had just immediate, how do they say it, chemistry, i can't define that but whatever that means they had it and it just got better and better and better well let's just say that your average joe can't deliver an airmail letter without putting stamp on <laughs> well,
1: well i wouldn't do that lois it's against the law i don't believe this lois i never lie huh. <laughs> well um just how fast do you fly
0: Oh, I don't know, really. You know, I never actually timed myself. Say, why don't we find out together?
1: I'm just, how do you suggest that we do that?
0: Well, you could take a ride with me. It's a great story. I love Margot. I'm so sorry for her passing so early in life. But Margot is just one of a kind. She, I I have a terrible, as you can, I can't remember anything, especially (laughs) names. You're doing uh, great. I couldn't remember Margot's name or something at the set. Just so many people and so many names, and I'd got that, 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 that. And so she started it because I couldn't remember her name, she'd call me Harry, <laughs> never, never Dick. And um, when the picture came out, she did a, an interview. My mother called me and she was talking. I, she said, but What was your job on Superman? I said, Mom, I directed it. She said, Well, you know, Look, did you do anything else? I said, no. She said, well, you can tell me the truth. I said, Mom, what are you talking about? She said, I saw Margot Kidder on a television interview, and she said the director's name was Harry. So <laughs> it's just, it just hung with me. It was, I loved Margot. I just, yeah. <laughs> she was perfect. The others were good. They were really good. But there was just another incident happened with Margot. Shortly after we started shooting... The makeup man came in to my office or was on the set or something and said that he had a problem. I said, what? He said, Margo had scratched her eye putting her contact in. I said, oh, God, uh, is it bad? He said, no, you can't even notice it. He said, but she can't wear her contacts. She just doesn't want to work. I said, bullshit. So I got I said, Margo, come on. You got to. She said, OK, all right, Harry. So what I noticed when she didn't have her contacts in was she Kept her eyes really wide. A lot of people squint. She did wide to see, and because she couldn't see that well, it was the same tripping that she did when she came in the door for casting. She bumped into a desk. She pushed. I, I said, "Oh my God!" It's Lois Lane is coming. So I forget reshot everything I shot, and made her work without her contacts, which she was <laughs> livid. And would try and sneak them in, but I would have makeup tell me when she had them in or not. But it gave her this wonderful character, physically helped her define it in her own little way. It was this special woman. Wow, so it's just a case of finding the perfect people
2: for the parts. I mean, he's found Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder. They're not huge stars or anything, but you got your Brando, you got your Hackman. And then render them legally blind. (laughs) That's the secret. Against their will. Make sure your lead actors can't see to read her lines. And she just bumps into things and becomes instantly charming.
1: (laughs) Now, as he mentioned before, they had done some development before the project came to him. And they hadn't put too much thought into uh, the special effect of flying. And we're just going to sort of do it the way they did it on the TV show which was a very hacky and fake-looking approximation of flying. Right. And he was determined to push this to the next level. And to
2: put it in the Hollywood history context, this is right after Star Wars. So Star Wars had just done all these amazing special effects. They upped the game. So you got to up the game with Superman.
1: But I don't know if he was comparing himself to other movies. He just knew
0: that if you could not achieve the flying illusion, you could not sell the movie. With a very strict schedule, both Brando and Hackman had been signed and committed to certain times, and I had to stay within those times. Did you cast them, or they were cast? They were cast already. Are you kidding? The guy said to me on the phone, a million dollars, Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. I didn't need a laxative. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so um, to get it, the production done with all these effects... We had a miniature unit, an interior unit, and an exterior unit. We had process units of painting. We had a flying unit. We had a second unit. We had stunt unit. We had a driving unit to set up the shots for the desert trip. And had, I had this cart, golf cart, and I had, it was not very sophisticated period, and I had seven of these walkie-talkies, and each was for a different... And somebody would come on and say, we need you on stage six. And I'd run over there and try and get that done. Meanwhile, anyway, that's a devious route here. The flying unit was predicated on front projection. So the audience, the difference between front and rear is in rear projection, the actor stands there and behind him projected on a screen is a visual of some sort that he fits into perfect. And if it's done right, it does look very much like he is in that background. And that unit that projects it weighs damn near a ton. It's not incontestant, it's arc lights. And then there was a front projection unit, and that would be a unit where the actor would stand in front of the camera, and behind him was a screen with nothing on it, but the projector was projecting from the front, not the back. Pass the actor onto that screen, and you try to marry the two together. And it was pretty good, but immobile, you couldn't, everything was rock solid with this heavy machine. And a guy came to me in England named Zorn Pesik. There, I I remember remember that. (laughs) Who said he had invented a front projection unit with zoom lenses that I believe weighed 35 or 40 pounds. This was against when it weighed a ton. So even though it wasn't perfected, the producers wouldn't give me the money to help him develop it. But Warner Brothers stepped in and gave him the money. And day after day after day, I gave my a whole unit, great cameramen, a great crew, great effects guys. I'd leave them alone. And they would try all these different, and it went on and on. And that unit worked for about eight months or a year while we were there trying to get a shot that looked like a man could fly. And one day, in dailies, I would always invite the crews, the dailies, or the cast. They ran their latest test, and I'll be goddamned. Christopher Eversupin literally flew. I mean, it was amazing. And not only was there applause, but there were tears. I mean, it had taken us so long. So Zorn Pesek and his front projection unit is what made Superman fly and gave it the authenticity that we had uh, been looking for. And didn't the tagline of the film end up being, you will believe a man can fly? Yes. <laughs> Not only, I don't know if it was the tagline of the film, but it was the advertising. Right. The one line, you will believe a man can fly. And did that come straight from
1: your directive at the beginning, we need to believe a man can fly? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. Let's just say it then. <laughs>
0: yeah, I created that.
2: Wow, Zorn. Zorn was the Superman of the Superman movie. Right, and the Lex Luthor is uh, producers, what are their names? <laughs> yeah, and the Salkinds are the, the Lex Luthor. We don't want to give you the money to make it look like a guy can convincingly fly. Just put him on a table. <laughs> put a hair dryer exactly. in his face. But Zorn... I looked this up. The uh, process is called Zoptic, so it's like Amazing. Zoom Optic. So you know, he he combined these front rear projectors with the Zoom Zoom. Right, and it made it lighter. So you, it let you move the camera around, I guess. Yes. So they've
1: got the script. They've got the Superman. characters. They're flying. <laughs> yeah, he's and making the movie. I mean, this is our first episode involving Marlon Brando, which is kind of exciting. Yes. Hollywood legend. The, the most legendary, weirdest, <laughs> but most brilliant actor of all time. Right. So, of course, Brando was cast as Jor-El, Superman's father on the home planet of Krypton. And let's just say, though, it's a small part. He's not
2: going to be in the movie that much. It's small, then... but he has amazing white hair in it. Right. But when you add it all together, at the time, it was the most money that an actor ever got paid. Yeah, for a few minutes. Right, because he ended up it was like he ended up with points in the movie, made like nineteen million dollars off being in the movie for like seven minutes or
1: something. It's crazy. He barely even wanted to be in the movie, even though he signed on to it. Here's
0: the story. I was coming back to do something else, and they set it up for me to meet Brando. And I decided if I was to come back, I'd bring what his costume was going to look like and what the sets looked like. And I called a fellow named Jay Cantor, who was a very prominent agent, Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando, every And I had met him a few times through Alan Ladd when I did The Omen. And I said, look, I'm going back to the um, States to meet Mr. Brando. Is there any insight you can give me? And he said, well, he said, I'll tell you this. He said, "Um, he's going to play it like a red suitcase. I said, What? He said, "Yeah, I spoke to him. He "He sees it as a red suitcase or a green suitcase." I said, "What do you? What does that mean?" He said, "I'll tell you what it means. It means that he loves the money and he hates the work. So if he can convince you that the people from what's your planet?" I said, "Krypton." He said, "If they look like green suitcases, then you'll photograph a green suitcase, and all he has to do is put some voice to it. When nobody's around, he'll get paid." and put his voice in, it doesn't work. And that's his way out. I said, oh my God. <laughs> so I had this. And then I decided to call, because I knew Francis Gopal and I called Francis. And I said, give me a hint. What do I do with this guy? He wants to play with like a green suitcase. He said, oh, you too, huh? <laughs> I said, yeah, he said, look, I can go on for hours about him. He said, he's a genius, he's a great guy. He's wonderful, he said, but he talks too much. And if you really listen, because he hates to work, but if you listen, he said he'll usually trip himself up. So I came back with that, and I went up and I met him. I brought Tom Mankowitz and the producer, and he was very gracious and sat down in his living room. We had a cup of coffee, and we're talking about this and that, and he got to talking about his kids, and he said, you know, I tell my son stories at night before he goes to bed, and he said, these kids are amazing. He said, I told him about th- fox that jumped over the wall and around a log, and the kid said, no, don't, Daddy. He jumps over the log and around the wall. He said, they know everything. And then he went on and on and on. And after about an hour of being just mesmerized by this man, he looked at us and he said, well, that's not why you're here. You're here to um, talk about my role and what I look like and everything. He said, uh, I have a thought. I said, oh, here comes the Suitcase (laughs) I said, Yes, Mr. Rando, and he said, What if I play this like a bagel? What if I'm a bagel? I said, I was prepared for a suitcase, but (laughs) I had no preparation for a bagel. (laughs) So I said he said, Well, you know, people on same thing. He said, People on Krypton look like bagels and I made my son in the image of an earthling, and that's why I sent him to Earth. I said, It's really an interesting idea. Tom Mangus is looking at me like, shut up. (laughs) And I said, but, you know, I got to tell you, he said, this was, came out in 1930, what, five or nine. And since then, kids around the world, they know what Superman looks like. And he doesn't look like a bagel, he looks like you. And he looked at me and he said, I talk too much, don't I? (laughs) I said, no, sir. He said, okay, show me my costume. And from there on in, he was a doll. He just was a pleasure. Fascinating. His stories were endless. His contributions were great. He wouldn't commit a word of dialogue. It all had to be on paper on an an actor's chest who he was looking at or when he held the baby up to do his soliloquy. The doll, we cut a hole in it and put a little TV monitor (laughs) and had the dialogue going, so he was reading it. But We will never leave you even in the face of our death, The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. When I would say, why are you, why, he said, look, if I go home and rehearse this for hours with somebody, he said, By the time I come in here and I go to shoot, he said, it's going to be so dry and stale, it's ridiculous. He said, but if I look at it for the first time here, he said, I'm going to be kind of stumbling honestly and trying to get through it. He said, it's going to be realer. That was it. That was Marlon Brando. Wait, he had a baby
1: with a screen on it that had the monitor with all his lines on it? (laughs) Yeah.
2: So much to unpack. That That was probably pretty high tech back then. (laughs) Just have a screen with the lines on it. So the little baby Superman was like projecting his lines? Yeah, a little teleprompter baby. I love it. I love that Marlon Brando is going to make $19 million for this movie. He's like, yeah, it might even be better if I'm not in it. Why don't we just do like a voiceover, have a green suitcase or a bagel? (laughs) 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 Talk (laughs) about trying to get away with stuff. Got to admire that work ethic. That's true. So we should mention that he's also filming Superman Two, right? At the same time, concurrently so he's filming all this footage. Yeah, they got all this footage in the can. They got Superman One. They got seventy-five percent of Superman Two.
1: Yeah, and he didn't have any music yet.
2: Right. So it's been this Herculean task. I Guess is what I'm getting at. And then, but now... he goes
1: home every day and smokes a doobie.
2: Yes, so Un- he told unwinds. us that. <laughs> We're not telling tales out of school. But post-production is always kind of a big task, but it's kind of a Herculean task because he's essentially, he's making two Supermans, but he's got to do the first one first, putting it together. He's got to get the music. He hires Jerry Goldsmith and then
1: uh, that that doesn't doesn't work out.
0: out. Ooh,
1: jinx. <laughs> We're like one brain. <laughs> so the, he goes to John Williams, who, of course, had a lot of success doing the Star Wars soundtrack and um, also the score for Jaws, which had just come out. He obviously would be a great choice for any movie. But then his scheduling didn't work out, and then it went back to Goldsmith, and then that didn't work out. And he, so, so much of Hollywood history is about timing, I think. Yes. But, of course, he did get John Williams in the end, and we got that iconic score.
0: Makes that music say the word Superman, and the other thing I can't remember anybody. Superman, it actually speaks. He was he's an amazing person.
1: Superman. I've never noticed that before. There you go. Amazing. The other thing he talked about was the great title sequence. Oh my God, it's so cool! You know how the like words come flying at you, and and they have the like trails. I mean, it's almost like you're on an acid trip or something with the trails of the. It's amazing when it started. You you didn't mind that that opening sequence is like seven minutes long. Oh, I could you know, stare at just it names. all day. Exactly. It's hypnotizing. He told us about the guy who did that, who actually passed away in 2018. His name was Richard Greenberg, and he did some of the best uh, title sequence of all time. He did Aliens, and he did The Untouchables. But Superman and Aliens, I think... I mean, Alien with an no S, are his two most famous title sequences. And, uh, of course, he was working with no computers or anything. He was just... Uh, using this crazy machine that was called an Oxbury, so we finally have uh, sort of a working print, something uh, we could show an audience, and everyone's waiting around for it. Where's Let's see, Superman. Yeah, where's Superman? We need Superman. Everyone needs some soupy.
2: I'm the producer of the movie. We have se- we need seven <laughs> Supermans right
1: now. I love for these the price of one. Hungarians of unspecific origin. They- What's this, they're Italian. Where are they they're, from? Yeah. I don't know where you are the now. The son was from
2: Mexico City. I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah. It's just like what. So who knows? But but uh, I'm okay. Just going so off of what uh, Richard Donner was saying.
1: So just moving right along. He he's done the post production. He has the score. He has the title sequence. He has the effects. But everyone's waiting around for Superman.
0: I came back from London, having finished the film, and we came back. And we were going to bring the work print. This is before an optical, a a negative was cut together. We were going to bring the work print and screen it for an audience because I had never screened the picture for an audience. And the deal was that producers would let me bring it to the States and Warner Brothers would set up a special projector to make sure this didn't tear. And we would run it for um, the first audience ever to see it. And when I got back here, I got a call from Warner Brothers that they were in litigation with the producers. And I vaguely remember it had something to do with the fact that there was a distribution date, and that's where the producers had an obligation to deliver the picture by that date. But we we brought it in three weeks early at that point, so the studio booked theaters predicated on the fact that we would be almost a month early, but I, I think the producers said, well, if you want us to bring it in early, you're going to have to pay like a million dollars a day for every day early. But it was another 18 or $20 million, and there was a big fight. And therefore, they wouldn't let me have my print to screen because they said, well, you can print that work print and show it in the theaters. He says, no, you can't. It's a work print. We have to transfer that to a a positive negative Positive, negative, and then an, uh, uh, an original negative, and a reversal negative, and do the color printing on three stripes. They said no, no, no. So they wouldn't give it. I never saw that movie until the premiere, and the day of the premiere, it was we call it a wet print. It came from the lab, hot off the presses, to the first screening, which I think was in L.A. It was the first premiere in L.A. And so that was the first time I, actually, saw the movie with an audience.
1: You weren't able to check no, it out to make no, sure the colors were good. No, nobody saw it produced. before.
0: No changes, no nothing. That's
1: got to be terrifying. It
0: was terrifying. It was.
1: So that was a screening, or that was the premiere. That was. Well, it
0: was. We had three premieres. We had a premiere there. Then we went to Washington D.C. for the president, and we had a screening there. And and um, the producers wouldn't get me a pass to come in and be part of the screening, the um, introduction to the president. Why were they so mean to Why? you? They, they were. They just were. I'm getting upset. Yeah, uh, I was getting upset. All, all three screenings were well. Then we had a screening in New York, which we kind of called the premiere, although the Washington DC was. And then we had one in London. So we had like four premieres for this, this movie. And uh, after the first one, I totally relaxed. We had a good picture.
1: Right. So the movie was out of the gate at the premieres, uh, really well received. How could it not be? It was so good. Right. One interesting bit of Superman comic book history was that the creators of Superman, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, were at the New York premiere. And uh, well, here, we'll let Richard tell the story, but it's pretty amazing.
0: When they saw the movie at the premiere in New York, one was blind, the other was was a mail carrier trying to make a living. Wow. Mm. When I had heard about that earlier, I went to the head of the studio while we were still shooting, and I said, this can't be. How can you have two guys that created a dynasty and a a whole different outlook on life for children uh, and have them struggling to make a living? And when they heard about it, they stepped up and gave them both wonderful, wonderful financial commitments for the rest of their lives. That's nice. But anyway, when they saw it, they had held back, not knowing for sure what they were going to see. But when they did, they presented me with a, a, a bronze of Superman that they had made in 1930-something. And to this day, it's at, at my house, this beautiful sculpture of Superman. All right, so in the end, it grossed,
1: million on its $55 million budget. Wow. It probably would make a lot more if it came out today. Right. That's talking money from 40 years ago. (laughs) Adjusted for inflation. (laughs) Yeah. But even like, I think now with the way superhero movies are, like it just would have been a bigger event. I I don't think people knew quite what was coming. Right, right. When this movie came out. But it wasn't the number one movie of the year, but it was third behind Animal House and Grease. Right, so 1978, a good year but for, for pop you, cinema. Yeah, yeah,
2: but when you look at it in terms of time, right? Superman came out in uh, around Christmas, and those other movies came out in the summer. So <laughs> does it doesn't mean that Superman made all that money. <laughs> I love that you know that, that one off month? the top of your head. I do. <laughs> but, That's scary. Um, and probably, you know, ultimately Animal House and it's Animal House, I'm sure, ended up making more money as far as how much it cost to how much it made. So Animal House probably
1: didn't cost that much at all. Right. Well, it wasn't an effects-driven blockbuster. Yeah. All three good movies. We recommend yes. them. If you've never heard of them, <laughs> Grease, Animal House, Spoiler and alert. Superman.
2: Yes, it's like
1: <laughs> obvious recommendations of the week. So as we suggested before, Richard kind of got pushed out of uh, Superman 2, even though he directed in the can like three quarters of it. Right. It's an amazing movie, too, with a rare sequel that equals or at least stands alongside the original. Yes. The um, Salkins brought back Richard Lester, who directed A
2: Hard Day's Night, but also directed those Three Musketeers movies. So probably, <laughs> you know, Three Musketeers, one through seven, one I've, through
1: 70. I have a feeling they had a hand in Superman 3 with uh, Richard Pryor, too, <laughs> which <laughs> oh, is yeah. considered one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> anyway... Amazing to talk to Richard Donner and hear how he did this. I mean, Oh, it's... and
2: by the way, Seth, uh should mention if you're interested in seeing the Richard Donner cut, it's out there. The Superman 2 Richard Donner cut. Oh, wow. is uh, available in the old school formats, but maybe on uh, streaming and stuff too, but I know it's out as a Blu-ray for the geeks.
1: So Richard, as we suggested, is still, and as you could see, is still very much on top of his game and uh, is aware of what's out there. And, uh, you know, we were curious what he thought of where, you know, comic book movies went from the time of Superman and, uh, you know, the sort of dark turn they've all taken. It seems like they're all trying to outdo themselves with the dark, gritty versions of themselves. And uh, he's keeping up with them and he has interesting thoughts on it.
0: They're successful, so I guess that's what the audience wants. Every film I make, or made, or about to make my next one, but every one I make, there's always a feeling of hope or up at the end of the movie. I just, there's enough, I've said this many, many times, enough depression and bullshit out there, turn on the news, it's free. Why go pay 50 bucks, go to a movie, and come out depressed? I, exactly. I just think there's a fantasy about movies should make you feel up and great. I, I, I don't like I saw the, joke, the Joker the other night. Me too. Did you see it? I mean, Did you like yeah, it? I yeah. thought it was really well made, but I don't know why. I don't know why either, <laughs> but it's brilliant. Yeah. It's brilliant. But, uh,
2: you, know, well, I, you know, it's kind of like I don't know why you need
0: to do that movie. Well, you do in a strange way because you've seen movies with The Joker But he just came on the screen, and he was part of... But who was he, and why was he there, and how did he get there? To see this guy's history and how he became the Joker and what his life was like, I thought it was fascinating. I think it was really well-written. Wow! But I I thought the actor, Joaquin, was was... genius. Yeah, definitely. Oh, my God, not a moment of self-consciousness and all of that. And the director was just wonderful and the writing so that's the answer to your question think, <laughs> anyway the, the, but that's dark it's very yeah. very, very I, dark I prefer like an upbeat thing You know, Me, I, I, I like when
2: the Joker was you know just wanted to listen to Prince and deface art you know that was yeah, fine yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, I don't need to get nightmares well, from the comic books that's all the divergent things that come out of a, a movie today if it's successful everybody jumped onto something
1: so there you have it he was a big fan of the Joker this was before the Oscars that we interviewed him and of course Joaquin went on to win Best Actor. and uh, But it doesn't surprise me. It kind of fits in, I think, with his Superman philosophy, which was to right away strip away the jokiness and to get to the reality of it. Mm-hmm. In terms of Superman, it was a brighter story. Um, although Superman 2 gets pretty dark. You have the oh, president right. of the United States on his knees <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in front of these uh, alien uh, villains. But uh, yeah, I think he he believed it. He wanted to convince people that a man could fly, he could fall in love with Lois Lane, and he wanted to believe the Joker could come out of something right, right, real. So, so that, that sort of made sense to me that he would like the Joker.
2: Yes. And in a way, uh, Joker is kind of a direct heir to Superman because... It was popular. It was also a critical success. And all of those things yeah. uh, were Superman the movie, Superman 1978,
1: same things. Yeah, I, I like Joker, and, and uh, it reminded me why I like comic book movies. And that was something that began with Superman the movie. So thank you so much, Richard Donner. We, we were very touched. And uh, I'm thrilled that you you did this. I think it's important for you to tell these stories. And uh, we were so touched that you did it here. It it happened in Hollywood. We have one more, guys. And uh, that's it for season two. We hope you've enjoyed it. It was such an amazing experience. So we'll see you here next week when our guest is... Zach Galifianakis. The very one. And uh, a nice thread there because Todd Phillips directed Joker and... He it's directed all uh, Hangover, and uh, it'll all make sense, we promise. So uh-huh. um, until next time, we'll see you in, in Hollywood. Hollywood.